Good morning, all. It's uh, wonderful to see everyone here on time. Uh, today is Wednesday, and the way we structure these, because it gets a bit tiring to be uh, so intellectually stimulated all the time. So we have some free time this afternoon uh, for people to go off and do whatever they want to do, see the various monuments, and take naps. Um, this morning, we're treated to a presentation on Obamacare and the Constitution, the Limits of Governmental Power by Michael Cannon, one of my colleagues here at Cato. He's Director of Health Policy Studies at Cato, has a number of advanced fancy degrees in economics and law and economics, which I learned has nothing to do with lawn care, which is what I thought, but it's law and economics. Uh, Michael explained that to me earlier. I thought it had to do with how to trim the hedges and do things optimally for your lawn. Uh, and he has... There were electives in that. I understand. Uh, a new book, an e-book, that's coming out shortly on replacing Obamacare. Michael Kim. Thank you, Tom. And thank you, to, thank you to all of you for being here, especially uh, the repeat customers, the old faces who I've seen in previous Cato universities. Thanks for, for coming back. Um, I'm going to be talking about Obamacare. I'm going to be uh, 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 talking about um, an unconstitutional element, not of the law so much as the a way the law is being implemented, a new constitutional problem that has arisen under this law. But first, I'm going to, I, I want to unpack Obamacare a little bit just so we, uh, we all know what, what it is that we're looking at, what this law, how this law was designed, what it's supposed to do before we talk about how it's being implemented, and how we're going to stop it from being implemented and hopefully repeal it. So if you're paying attention during 2009 and 2010, you'll remember the following things. Obamacare is supposed to expand health insurance coverage to 32 million Americans. Now, this is not universal health insurance. There are a lot of people who will not have health insurance, even if Obamacare takes effect as intended. But this is sort of the biggest leap that the, uh, that the federal government has ever taken uh, toward universal health insurance coverage, and so most people call it that. It's also the largest social, uh, the most sweeping social legislation that Congress has ever enacted. If you think about it, the Social Security uh, Act, the, uh, the amendments to the Social Security Act that created Medicare and Medicaid in 1965, these were not nearly as sweeping because they were targeted toward very small populations, and yes, they were expanded over time. But Obamacare, we are talking about a, a, a law that sweeps two-thirds of the American people, 200 million people, into a compulsory health insurance scheme. Now, I spent a lot of time trying to get people to re-examine the entire uh, uh, assumption, the, entire, the whole idea that it is a proper role of government to encourage people to purchase health insurance coverage, or to issue a government guarantee of universal health insurance coverage to all. Nevertheless, Congress didn't take my advice. They enacted Obamacare. So how is Obamacare supposed to achieve this massive expansion of health insurance coverage to 32 million Americans? Well, through two main vehicles. One is, a, is, is an expansion of the Medicaid program that I mentioned Congress enacted in 1965. 
It was enacted in the same, uh, in the same law that created Medicare. Medicaid is a program ostensibly to provide health care to the poor. There are actually a lot of people in Medicaid who don't need to be there, a lot of non-poor people who could obtain health insurance or, or, uh, or, or pay for their nursing home care or other long-term care services by themselves. But that's how Obamacare is going to expand, or purports to expand coverage to 16 million Americans, is by expanding the Medicaid program. You may have heard that the Supreme Court recently struck down that mandate that states who implement Medicaid, that states expand their Medicaid programs. The law actually says that if states don't expand their Medicaid programs, then they lose all federal Medicaid funding, which amounts to about 12% of state revenues for your average state. So that's a sizable chunk of money. The Supreme Court said you cannot mandate that states do that. You cannot uh, put a gun to their heads by saying we're going to take away all of those federal funds if you don't ex dramatically expand your Medicaid programs nationwide to cover 16 million more people. The Supreme Court said you can only offer that money as an option. You, that new Medicaid money that the federal government offered uh, states to expand their programs, you can offer that as an option. You can deny them that money if they don't expand their programs, but you cannot deny them that 12% of their budgets that they're already receiving. But expanding that program is, is, is how Obamacare hoped to achieve half of its coverage gains. The other half, the other 16 million uh, newly insured people, were going to be newly insured through what we call health insurance exchanges. These are essentially government agencies through which insurance companies and individuals have to, have to go in order to exchange health insurance, exchange money for health insurance with each other. It's a bit of a misnomer to call these exchanges because what they really are is government agencies, but we're just going to go with that. The way these health insurance exchanges work is these government agencies are going to be enacting, or um, rather implementing, the major health insurance regulations that Obamacare imposes on private health insurance. Now, I'm going to talk about a few of those in a moment. But for our present purposes, one of the most important features of these exchanges is they will be the conduits for, about, for, for massive subsidies to private health insurance companies in order to help people uh, with incomes below 400% of the federal poverty level, which is almost $90,000 for a family of four, to help them purchase health insurance, help them afford the very expensive health insurance that Obamacare requires them to purchase. So these are your two main coverage expansions, Medicaid program and these health insurance exchanges. The cost in terms of the federal budget of, the, of these coverage expansions, at the time they enacted the law, they said it was going to be about $1 trillion over 10 years. That was always nonsense because they enacted this in 2010. This money wasn't going to start flowing until 2014. So that 10-year budget window they were looking at included 2010, 2011, 2012, 2013, years in which there were, those subsidies were not going to flow, either the exchange subsidies or the, uh, uh, or the Medicaid expansion. And so when they said it was a trillion-dollar bill, it was actually much more than that. Because when you look at the first 10 years of implementation, it was more like two, two and a half trillion dollars of new government spending. Now, how'd they pay for that? Well, half of the money comes from tax increases. We're talking about increases in the, uh, well, new taxes on, on medical devices, health insurance, pharmaceuticals. They had a, uh, a new tax on tanning beds. There was uh, a tax in there. This is, this is actually, well, the, there were taxes that reduced the amount of money that very poor or very sick people can deduct from their taxes because of their medical bills. 
which I think is a little perverse. There are taxes in there on, health, on people with health savings accounts. My favorite tax increase in this bill, in this law, would have to be the increase in the Medicare payroll tax. Because this increase in the Medicare payroll tax, ironically, is not going to fund Medicare. And it taxes more than payrolls. And yet we still call it a Medicare payroll tax. But those were supposed to come up with half a trillion under the original budget window, or, one tri or a full trillion dollars over the first 10 years of implementation of, in a, either way, half of the cost of this new entitlement spending. The other half was supposed to come from cuts. We call them cuts. Cuts in the government's payments to doctor, not to doctors, to healthcare providers other than doctors under the Medicare program. We're talking about hospitals, we're talking about health insurance companies that Medicare pays to provide coverage to about a quarter of seniors and, and various other healthcare facilities and providers. We, I, they're not really cuts because what they are is reductions in the rate of growth of Medicare spending, but that was supposed to come up with the other half trillion dollars or one trillion dollars, half of the cost of the new spending under this law. So those are the basic contours of Obamacare. I want to focus for a minute on these health insurance exchanges because these are really uh, the, the, the key, let me back up a second, the key to stopping this law and forcing Congress to repeal it is stopping that Medicaid expansion and blocking these health insurance exchanges. These are both uh, within the, 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 the purview of states. States have the power under this law and under the Supreme Court's recent ruling to block the implementation of exchanges, not to create an exchange themselves, and to uh, block the ex expansion of Medicaid because they don't lose any more, uh, they don't lose the old Medicaid money now if states decline to expand their Medicaid programs. Why is that, how is that going to, to block this law? Well, with a Medicaid program, think about it. Medicaid, who profits from Medicaid? Who makes money off the Medicaid program? Well, there are a lot of private health insurance companies that provide health insurance to Medicaid enrollees, just as they do through the Medicare Advantage program. There are a lot of hospitals across the country who get lots of money through the Medicaid program. There are pharmaceutical companies. Pharmaceutical companies, this is, this is a fun little story. Uh, They'll complain about the price controls in the Medicaid program because that's how government pays for drugs in the Medicaid program, by slapping price controls on them. But they do such a good job of gaming those price controls, the pharmaceutical companies do, that I was recently speaking you know, to a, 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 someone who worked at Families USA. This is a left-wing group that focuses on health care. Um, they're a very passionate bunch of people. I totally disagree with them. So when I call them Families USSR, it's out of love. I have a, a tremendous amount of respect for them, even though I disagree with them. But uh, what one of their uh, healthcare analysts said to me one time was, uh, was they, they were forming one of these strange bedfellows coalitions with pharma, and everyone thought it was so unusual that, that a left-wing group like Families USA and, and, and the pharmaceutical lobby would be joining forces for something. She told me in Sato Voce at one, uh, on a panel we were speaking on, she, she said, it's not that strange, a, uh, it's not a strange bedfellows coalition. Pharma makes so much money off of the Medicaid program, and it's true. So all of these beneficiaries of the Medicaid program, aside from the people the program is intended to help, drug companies, insurance companies, hospitals, other healthcare facilities, and so forth, look at this law from their perspective. 
a lot of them signed off on Obamacare because they signed off on all those cuts that they were, the supposed cuts that Obamacare makes to Medicare payments uh, because they were expecting to receive, among other things, massive new subsidies through the Medicaid program. But what did the Supreme Court say as were, uh, in, its, in its decision in NFIB versus Sebelius? Where that Medicaid expansion was mandatory, the Supreme Court made it optional for states. States are not going to lose 12% of their revenues if they fail to expand their Medicaid programs. In fact, and, and because, these Medicaid pro, because expanding the Medicaid program will be very costly for many states, in fact, my colleague here, Jagadish Gokhale, estimated that Kansas, Texas, Florida, Illinois, these states can expect to spend another $20 billion on Obamacare's Medicaid expansion if they implement it. New Jersey, $35 billion. New York, $53 billion over the first 10 years of this implementation. And that's if Congress doesn't change, uh, move the goalposts, and shift more of those costs to the states, which President Obama, by the way, has been trying to do for two years now. So that would be very costly for states. A lot of them have been saying, we're not going to, we're not going to expand Medicaid. The governor of Florida, the governor of uh, Louisiana, the governor of Texas, Wisconsin, the governor in Texas, Wisconsin, South Carolina has said this. The Democratic governor of Montana, which is the home state of the lead author of Obamacare, Senate Finance Committee Chairman Max Baucus, he has said, hey, we, we can't print money. This is expensive. We're, we're not the federal government here. We, we can't just crank up the printing press whenever we want to increase government spending. So this is really, uh, the Medicaid expansion is encountering a lot of resistance at the state level. What does that do to you if you are a pharmaceutical company, a medical, uh, a, a medical device manufacturer, a uh, health insurance company, a hospital, who signed off on this law, who signed off on those cuts because you're expecting all these new subsidies? It changes how you make out under this law. They thought they were going to get all this new money from Medicaid because Congress was forcing states to expand their Medicaid programs. The Supreme Court said, nope, we're not forcing you to do that anymore. And now states are taking a hard look at this and, uh, try, and just trying to decide whether they're going to expand their Medicaid programs. And a lot of them are saying no. That right there helps to repeal this law because it changes the impact of this law on some very key constituencies. Have we covered concentrated benefits and diffuse costs yet? Yes, good. You have in these pharmaceutical companies, insurance companies, hospital groups, they're a very small segment of the population, but they have a very large financial incentive in what's going on here. And all of a sudden, you know, they were, they were willing to sign off on Obamacare because the, they, they figured from their perspective, the new subsidies were going to uh, benefit them more than those cuts to Medicare would. But, but stopping the Medicaid expansion changes their calculus, it, it, and, and it makes them more receptive to opening, reopening that law. And I think a lot of them, if they're blocked at the state level, will go to Congress and say, we have to reopen this law. So the first thing that we, that we have to do to stop Obamacare is to stop states from expanding their Medicaid programs. That should be, a, in, in most states, it should be a pretty easy sell. I should say, just so you know, know that Jagadish is not cooking the books when he comes up with those uh, projections about Medicaid costs to the states, uh, the cost of the states of expanding their Medicaid programs, he also projected that California would make out, uh, it would save California money if they expanded their Medicaid program as Obamacare wants. It would cost them less than running the program uh, they have right now if they expanded it to 
all the people up to 138% of the federal poverty level as, as, as Obamacare wants. However, with this, with this caveat, this is so you know he's not, we're not cooking the books, but with this caveat, that if the president doesn't get his way and shift more of those costs to the states. So even California is gonna suffer under that expansion. But that's the first way that states can, can, uh, can block out Obamacare's implementation and force Congress to, uh, to reopen and hopefully repeal this law. The second way that states can do this has to do with health insurance exchanges. Now, I've been traveling the country ever since Obamacare was enacted, telling states don't create these exchanges. There are a lot of myths that uh, state officials have been hearing from the insurance companies who are, uh, and the consultants who expect to make a lot of money off of these, uh, off of these exchanges. Uh, you, may have, you may have heard, by the way, that Mitt Romney appointed Mike Levitt to be some, some muckety-muck in his uh, healthcare, in his transition team, assuming he gets elected. Mike Levitt is the former Republican governor of Utah. He's a former Secretary of Health and Human Services under President Bush. He formed a group called Levitt Partners that is actually going around the country trying to encourage states to implement Obamacare exchanges because they're bidding on the contracts to do that. Now, I'm not questioning his motives. I'm sure he thinks that that is the best thing for the country. Still sort of ironic that the, the guy who says he's going to repeal Obamacare as soon as he's in office is... is, is, is tapping this guy for one of his advisors. But Levitt Partners, the insurance companies who are expecting hundreds of billions of dollars, or over the first 10 years of implementation, a trillion dollars to flow through these exchanges to them, have been telling state officials, if you don't create an exchange yourself, you're gonna have Washington imposing one on you. You don't want that, do you? And you'd be surprised at how many people at the state level who purport to believe in limited government are falling for that. The statute says that every state exchange, every exchange established by a state has to be approved by the Secretary of Health and Human Services. The statute says the Secretary of Health and Human Services can make state-run exchanges do whatever they want. So any horrible thing that the federal government might impose on a state, if a state fails to create its, ex its own exchange and the federal government creates one in its stead, any horrible thing that that federal exchange might do to a state, the Secretary can impose on a state on her own. Uh, it can force a state-run exchange to do through regulation. So if states create their own health insurance exchanges, it's not going to preserve their sovereignty. It's not going to give them any more control over their health insurance markets. What it's going to do is it's going to rescue Obamacare. It's going to, uh, that, is the, 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 that is how states can guarantee that they will have a federal, the federal government impose an exchange on their states because the federal government's gonna be calling the shots. If they decline to create an exchange, there might not be an exchange at all because the people who wrote Obamacare were so sure that states were gonna to wanna to implement this law, that states would create exchanges. They didn't include any funding for the federal government to create exchanges. So this is a real problem for the Obama administration because right now, they, are, they have estimated that as many as 30 states, and some experts think more than 30 states, will not create an exchange by 2014 when they're supposed to come online. So they're having a real problem even coming up with the money to create these exchanges. So the best thing that states can do to preserve their own sovereignty is say, no, we're not going to create these exchanges because the alternative is not a federal exchange. That is a federal exchange if you create one. The alternative to, uh, is you may not get an exchange at all. Uh, the more that state officials look into this issue of whether they should establish exchanges, the more of them say, forget about it. Again, Rick Scott of, Cal of, of, uh, Rick Scott of Florida was the first governor 
to refuse to create an exchange, again followed by Bobby Jindal. Other states have done the same. Same states, actually, Texas, South Carolina, Wisconsin. The governor of Wisconsin, Scott Walker, had actually taken a grant to establish an exchange, tens of millions of dollars. He sent it back to Washington, said, forget it, we're not going to create one of these exchanges. The governors of Kansas and Oklahoma did the same thing. Lots of governors have sent grants back to Washington rather than implement these exchanges because they realized it's not going to give us any sovereignty. This is just a bad deal for states all around. States will have to pay for the, the operating costs of these exchanges. They're going to get blamed when Obamacare starts hurting people. It's not a good deal. But here's the real reason why states refusing to create exchanges cripples Obamacare and could force Congress to reopen and repeal the law. To explain why that is, I, I have to explain a little bit of how these exchanges will operate, how Obamacare uh, is going to expand coverage to 16 million uninsured Americans through these exchanges. Everyone likes to say the centerpiece of Obamacare is the individual mandate. That's actually not the case. The centerpiece of Obamacare is a system of price controls that Obamacare imposes on private health insurance. These aren't price controls that set a specific number, say you have to charge this much. They're price controls that say to insurance companies, I don't care, we don't care, if one person costs $5,000 to insure, an actuarially pr fair premium for that person is $5,000, and an actuarially fair premium for this other person over here is $400,000, because that's how much it costs them, it costs to insure them. If those two people, and I'm not picking that number out of the air, I've, I've been corresponding recently with a, with, with, a, with a childhood friend who has cystic fibrosis and who actually costs, who needs medical care that costs $400,000 a year. These price, Obamacare's health insurance price controls tell insurance companies that if those two patients are the same age, we don't care how much it costs to insure this one or that one. You have to charge them the same premium. Now let's say, because there aren't many $400,000 patients out there, let's say a weighted average, the weighted average of those two types of patients is $10,000. What that means is that the person who costs $5,000 to insure, their premiums just went up by $5,000. The person who costs $400,000 to insure, their premiums just went down by $390,000. The individual mandate exists to force the healthy people to take this bad deal when their premiums double. And this law will double premiums for a lot of people, even after you apply the subsidies I'm going to talk about in a moment. And that's not us saying that, though that's supporters of the law. Like MIT economist Jonathan Gruber, who did a lot of the number crunching before this law was enacted. He didn't, he didn't tell anybody it would double premiums before the law was enacted, but afterward he began consulting with states and, 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 then, and then crunched those numbers. So some people's premiums are going to double. That's why the individual mandate is there, to force them to take that bad deal. What happens on this side of the, of the ledger? What happens to the patients who just saw their premiums fall? This is good for them, right? Because this government price control just lowered their premiums. It made health insurance more affordable for them. This is what the president is talking about when he says people with pre-existing conditions won't have to worry anymore because insurance companies cannot deny them coverage, cannot charge them pre premiums any higher than they charge healthy people. What's not to like? Well, I'll tell you what's not to like. The government price control, this government price control, like all government price controls, they can change the price that producers charge. 
but they can't change the economic reality underlying that price. That patient still costs $400,000 a year to, ins to insure. And if you tell insurance companies they have to charge him, uh, they have to sell him insurance at a premium of only $10,000, what you've done is you've given them a $390,000 incentive to avoid that patient, to mistreat that patient if they do it, sign up with that insurance company, in the hopes of dumping that patient off of their roles and onto their competitors' roles, where they'll bring down their competitors' bottom line. Think about it from the perspective of the insurance companies. It doesn't matter how many of these healthy patients you sign up where you get this $5,000, where $5,000 of the premium you collect from them is gravy to you. Every time, anything you do that gets rid of those $400,000 patients saves you $390,000. Many, many multiples of how much you're making over there. What happens to an insurance company if it be, gains a reputation of providing the best coverage to people with cystic fibrosis? All the patients with cystic fibrosis are going to gravitate to that insurance plan and bring down that plan's bottom line. All these $390,000 liabilities. Insurance companies cannot let that happen. Research by President Obama's own economic advisors shows that plans that do that, that let that happen, will go out of business. The carriers that let that happen will go out of business. So if they want to survive, they have to make sure they do not appeal to the sickest patients. They have to make sure, they have to do whatever they can to make sure they do not provide the best care to the sickest patients. These price controls, far from helping patients with pre-existing conditions, create a race to the bottom among insurance companies that encourages them to avoid those patients and mistreat them. And judging by the number of provisions in this law that are supposed to prevent that from happening, the people who wrote this law are very, very afraid of that monster they've created. But you know, there, are those, there are regulations in that law that are supposed to prevent that from happening. And you know, the regulators never miss a beat, so I don't know why any of us should be concerned. But these, are the, these price controls are the centerpiece of this, of this law. In order to keep the healthy people in the insurance pools, subsidizing the insurance companies that have to cover those sick, those sick folks, we have the individual mandate. But because the insurance is so much more expensive as a result of those price controls, and because the penalties under the individual mandate are really just a fraction of, of the insurance premiums that Obamacare forces people to pay, there's still a huge incentive there for people to wait until they're sick to buy health insurance, pay the penalty, Wait until they're sick to buy health insurance, and then, and then once they've got a pre-existing condition, then sign up. In fact, a colleague and I estimated or ran the numbers, and we found that individuals could save up to $3,000 a year, and families of four could save up to $8,000 a year just by not buying health insurance, uh, paying the penalty, and waiting until they get sick to purchase coverage. $8,000 a year for a family of four. It's a lot of money. It's a big incentive. So one of the things that, uh, that so Obamacare has another uh, uh, component that's designed to try to keep those people in the insurance market. And those are the subsidies that I mentioned earlier, the subsidies that are available only through health insurance exchanges. They're called health insurance tax credits and cost-sharing subsidies. When we say tax credit, it sounds like tax reduction. In fact, 
only 20% of the money that we're talking about here is tax reduction. The other 80% of that trillion dollars is new government spending. Well, it turns, here's why getting states, here, here's why it's so important that states not create health insurance exchanges. Unbeknownst to me, unbeknownst to you, unbeknownst to a lot of people who, are, who were following this law closely, Obamacare only makes those subsidies available through exchanges that are established by states. It does not authorize those subsidies, those either the tax credits or the checks that the government writes to insurance companies. It does not authorize them through a health insurance exchange that's created by the federal government if a state does not create its own. This is... This came as a surprise to me. It came as a, uh, an even bigger surprise to me when I learned that this was not a mistake. This was intentional. This was one of the many incentives they put into the law to encourage states to create their own exchanges. States that create their own exchanges, well, their residents will get these tax credits and subsidies. States that don't, forget it. You don't get those tax credits and subsidies because we want you to create these exchanges. They never imagined. The, the flip side of that incentive is that states had it within their power to stop those subsidies. The authors of Obamacare never imagined that states would actually refuse. They made confident predictions at the time this law was passed, all states will create exchanges. They're eager to create exchanges. But as I mentioned before, the more states look at this, the more they realize it's a bad deal for them. And so you've got some experts saying that maybe as few as 10 states if that, we'll have these exchanges ready to go by 2014, which means that under the law, you're talking about 40 states where those, tech, where those uh, subsidies won't be available. And what, is it, what happens if those subsidies aren't available? Well, the low-income people, who, the low-income healthy people who benefit from those subsidies won't, won't receive them. Instead of having those subsidies shift the cost of Obamacare's very expensive health insurance regulations from them and from insurance companies to taxpayers, they are going to see the full cost of those regulations. Obama, if there are no tax credits and cost-sharing subsidies, shifting those costs away from health insurance companies, then those costs will be what? Focused on a very small but very organized group. Those very large costs will be focused on a very small but very organized group. And what the problem of concentrated benefits and diffuse costs tells us is that's gonna motivate that group to do something. The insurance companies are not going to tolerate that. They are going to, they're going to go to Congress and say, you can't let these price controls take effect without those subsidies in place. What happens if those subsidies aren't in place, the low-income healthy people will say, we're not gonna buy health insurance at these inflated prices, we're gonna wait until we get sick because you can't charge us more than anyone else. The healthy people opt out of the pool, the that means the average premiums go up. And we, the insurance companies, are out of business if that happens. When the insurance companies thought that the Supreme Court would strike down the individual mandate but leave the rest of the law intact, they were gearing up for a big campaign to get Congress to eliminate those pre-existing condition provisions, the, what we call community rating price controls. The same thing will happen 
if they don't get their subsidies through the exchange because the same process of what we call adverse selection will take hold when the healthy people opt out of the market, premiums go up, more healthy people opt out until that market collapses. So states, just as they can change the incentives faced by these concentrated interest groups by refusing to expand their Medicaid programs, states can do the same thing by refusing to implement an exchange. They're going to take a lot of people who are okay with this law and make them not okay with this law and encourage them to go back to Congress and tell Congress to reopen. They can broaden the coalition of people, which is most of the American public already, but that's a very diffuse group, that want to repeal this law. Now, you could say, well, aren't they just going to go to states and say, expand Medicaid and, uh, and, and, and create an exchange because we want our subsidies? Yeah, and they've been doing that. The, state, the, these, uh, the insurance companies have been doing that for two years now without much success. Part of the reason is because creating exchanges imposes costs on state officials. Another part of the reason is because of, we've seen a backlash against this law by average people, but also concentrated groups with an ideological interest, like the Tea Party, in fighting Obamacare which has been uh, one of the really gratifying parts, one of the few gratifying parts of this whole Obamacare fight. Now, I promised you uh, a constitutional problem at the beginning. There is one uh, that emerges surrounding this whole issue of health insurance exchanges and whether those tax credits and subsidies will be available in health insurance exchanges. And that is this. I said before that the law clearly authorizes those subsidies only in health insurance exchanges created by a state. And that's not just me saying that. One of the leading experts on the law and the implementation of this law, and also one of the leading supporters of this law, is a professor of law at Washington Lee University named Timothy Jost. For those of you who are interested, I'm going to be testifying next to him on a panel tomorrow on this very issue. Professor Jost has said that the law clearly says, those are his words, clearly says that these tax credits and subsidies are available only through exchanges established by a state. Now the IRS is the one that implements these tax credits, they're tax credits, and even these subsidies, these checks that the government's going to be writing to health insurance companies, a trillion dollars worth of checks that are going to flow through the health insurance exchanges. In its regulation implementing the tax credits under Obamacare, the IRS has said that it is going to make those tax credits and subsidies available through exchanges created by the federal government. It has said uh, that it is going to create a, essentially, Literally, create a tax credit that Congress did not authorize. Why is that? Precisely the reason I was mentioning before. If those subsidies are not available in federal exchanges and states don't create their own exchanges, the law collapses. So they are the IRS is literally rewriting the statute in order to save it. Assuming, well, before I get to that, it's not just tax credits. There are tax credits. 20% of the money we're talking about here is tax credits. But those tax credits are what trigger the other 80% of the money, the subsidies, the new government spending. So when the IRS says we're going to authorize, or we're going to create these unauthorized tax credits, it's also saying we are going to 
make these unauthorized appropriations as well. And it gets even worse than that because those tax credits also trigger the penalties that employers will have to pay under Obamacare's so-called employer mandate. You've heard about the, we've talked about the mandate on individuals. There's also a mandate on employers that they have to provide coverage uh, to their workers, all full-time workers, that is both essential, that is essential, you know, what the government says you have to offer them, and affordable, so that the so-called employee part of the premium is below 9.5% of household income. If an employer fails to do those things, fails to provide essential and affordable coverage to their workers, and, this is crucial, and one of those workers goes into a health insurance exchange and gets one of those subsidies, then, then the employer has to pay a penalty of up to $2,000 per worker. You talk about a, an employer with 100, 200, or more workers, that's, that's real money you're talking about. If, under the statute, if states don't create a health insurance exchange, there are no tax credits, there are no subsidies to trigger those penalties against employers. So one of the biggest selling points when you go to talk to state officials uh, about why they should not create a health insurance exchange is that you can protect your state, employers in your state, from Obamacare's employer mandate. This is a $2,000 per worker tax that Obamacare is imposing on employers in your state. You can say to them, if you impose that tax on your employers by creating an exchange and your neighbor doesn't, in Mississippi right now, there are Republicans in Mississippi that, by God, they want to create an Obamacare exchange. If they create an Obamacare exchange, they are imposing that tax on their employers. But Texas, or Louisiana has said it will not. Texas has said it will not. Florida, South Carolina has said it will not. What's going to happen in Mississippi is they're going to, if, if they do this, there's going to be a giant sucking sound of jobs leaving that state for other states that weren't so stupid as to impose a $2,000 per employee tax on employers under the statute as written. Under the IRS rule, however, the IRS is creating these illegal tax credits that are going to trigger these illegal taxes on employers. And so one of the biggest selling points at the state level uh, is uh, if you, if you um, it disappears. I mean, the IRS is, is literally taxing employers without authorization from Congress. This is taxation without representation. And it gets even worse still, because the way the money shakes out is like this. Yeah, there are tax credits in this rule, but it's not a tax cut. The IRS is creating tax credits, but it's not a tax cut. Because for every $2 of tax reduction that the IRS is creating, it is imposing $1 of taxes on employers. So you're offsetting, already offsetting $1, that tax reduction. So now it's only $1 of tax reduction on, on net. And that $1 of, uh, of net tax reduction is completely swamped by another $8 of new government spending that the taxpayers are gonna to have to cover. So this IRS rule is a tax increase. And because, on balance, for every $2 of tax reduction, we're, uh, you're, you're ending up with another $9 of deficit spending. So that's another thing that this IRS rule is doing without congressional authorization. It's increasing the federal deficit. What's the total cost of this rule? If no states created exchanges, the total cost of this IRS rule would be a trillion dollars of new spending that the IRS is committing taxpayers to without any congressional authorization whatsoever. 
So a lot, uh, an awful lot of my time uh, of, over the past year has been focused on this issue of blocking this IRS rule, which was proposed last summer. Uh, there are a number of ways that it could happen. One way is Congress could invalidate the rule. Now, well, the first thing that should happen is that the IRS should rescind the rule because they're exceeding their statutory authority and putting the IRS on a par with Congress by saying the IRS has the power to tax Americans and to spend money. That power is so important that the Constitution confined it to the House of Representatives, said that all revenue measures must originate in the House because that's closest to the people. But never mind the Senate, we're talking about the IRS here that's claiming this power. So the IRS has a clear duty to rescind this rule. Probably won't do that. It's the IRS. <laughs> Congress can block this rule through the Congressional Review Act, which allows Congress to pass a resolution of disapproval. One has been introduced in both the House and the Senate. Senate's usually the hurdle in these sorts of scenarios, uh, but 30 senators can bring it to the floor, can force a vote on it, and it can't be filibustered, so all you need is 51 senators. May not, it may not succeed in the Senate, but it's gonna be awfully hard for senators to argue for, uh, in favor of, the most reviled government agency in the country imposing an illegal tax on employers amid high unemployment. Because that's what's happening here. But even if it clears the Senate, it still has to be signed by the President of the United States who presumably signed off on this rule in the first place. I'd like to see him have to defend this rule, but he's probably not gonna sign that resolution of disapproval. So the remedy, uh, so, so fortunately there's another remedy. Because this rule, usually if the IRS is just handing out tax credits to people without congressional authorization, you can't challenge them because no one has standing to sue. The courts have, uh, have, have traditionally held that the, the harm in, inflicted on me and on you by, by that kind of lawlessness is too distant, too remote, too small to justify, uh, to, to, to give us standing to challenge it. However, remember, this IRS rule is imposing an, Ill an illegal tax on employers. So any employer with more than 50 employees in a state that decides not to establish an exchange, and remember, again, we're talking about Florida, Louisiana, Texas, South Carolina, Wisconsin, quite possibly Kansas, Oklahoma, uh, and, and other states, will be able to establish standing to challenge this rule, which is essential to first upholding the Constitution because the IRS does not have the power to do this, but also essential to blocking those uh, tax credits, those, those subsidies, and forcing Congress to reopen this law. So that's, that's what I wanted to cover for you folks. I'm happy to take uh, whatever questions you've got. Thank you.